started. Welcome this morning. We look into God's Word together. Let's pray for a couple minutes together. So, Father, we bow in your presence. We are deeply grateful for your love for us. And, you know, sometimes we think of that term reckless in, in a negative way, but it's just this incredibly expansive love that we can't even begin to put into words that simply can't be contained by our limited ability to express it. It's just an overwhelming act where you were all in for us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did that. And as we're heading into Lent, those 40 days that lead up to the Passion Week and are part of the Passion Week, we pray that we're very appreciative of the good news of Jesus that has changed us. We thank you for your word. And as we consider your word now, that that it would not just inform us, but it would be instrumental in guiding us on a new path. And and there's something deeply rich about the passage we're going to read today. So would you use your servant to begin to plumb the depths of that with your people? Speaking first into my heart, but into each one of our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So we're in this series of messages on the Lord's Prayer. We're on week number four. And so Jesus has this vital relationship with God the Father. He's the Spirit-filled God-man. And the disciples see that he has this deeply intimate relationship with God the Father that's really resident in his prayer life. That he doesn't say anything or do anything apart from what the Father has revealed to him to do. And so they say to him one day, would you teach us how to pray? And I think this is a longing in every human heart to connect with God, who wants to fill um, that sense of emptiness or void that each one is born with, and to have this intimate relationship with the one that's always loved us. And Jesus says to them, I would be glad to teach you how to pray. And so we have this wonderful prayer, we call the Lord's Prayer, that is wonderful to recite. And in fact, I've invited all of us to pray it each day for six weeks together so that it goes deep into our soul, not just in a way where we could recite it, but to say, what are the constituent parts of this prayer that I can use in in a very transferable way, allow it to inform my prayer life? so that I'm, I'm praying in a very balanced, healthy way. And, and I'm not gonna hit every one of these points in every prayer I do, but in an overall sense, am I praying, hallowed be your name? Is that incorporated into my prayer life? Am I praying, give this this day my daily bread? I'm grateful for the basics of life and how you're supplying and caring for me. That your will would be um, played out in my life and to talk in prayer about what that really means. What do you want it to do to affect my life in this area, and this area, and this area, in what I say and in what I do. And so we work through all of these different areas, and today we're going to talk about forgive us our debts, verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors. What does it mean? to be a debtor. Well, with the kind of debt our society carries, it's probably fairly simple to understand, but I'm actually not so sure we really understand it that well. 
But if I could boil it down into four words, it would be this four words. You owe, you pay. You owe, you pay. And if, you, if, you're not, if you're having trouble with that concept, just test it out. Go to the bank one day and say, you know that mortgage that I'm paying every month? It's really bumming me out, and I really don't want to do it anymore. It's really hindering my life, and so I've just decided to stop paying it. Have a nice day. I'm out of here. And see how they react. They're not going to react well because they operate, and so many of us operated of this idea of you owe you pay. Jesus says, forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have sinned against you. This is the first part of that verse 12. Forgive us, God, for the ways we've sinned against you, because the Bible is very clear. It tells us that each and every one of us has sinned against God repeatedly. And actually, I was trying to think of a, of a word image, but if you started piling one on top of the other, all of the sinful things we do, it would really, over a lifetime, amount to a, building a not just a mountain, but a mountain range of moral debt, all of which we cannot pay off. We were singing about that this morning themed around the idea of forgiveness and how sweet that is. And so we have this mountain of moral debt that we can't pay off. But he also says, in addition to that, even though we've also sinned against God and against others, not only that, not only are we the perpetrators, but at times we are also the victim of those kinds of activities perpetrated on us. Because there's someone in our life that has betrayed us, someone in business that we thought we could trust and they cheated us, someone in our family that's wounded us, someone in the church that's done wrong by us. And so we all have debtors in our life. And this idea brings us to a spiritual crossroads in life. And if I had to pick one of those top two or three areas that I find believers struggle with more than any others, it's this last one. How do I deal with people that have sinned against me? How do I process forgiveness appropriately? And I find that we do not do this well at all. What are we going to do with people who have sinned against us, our, debt, our debtors? How motivated are we to extend grace to our debtors? And for many of us, this is extremely low on the priority pole of our life. And we, we, we deceive ourselves and we say, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to pretend like it never happened. Or I'm going to run away. And this is a very common practice in the church. Very sad. Someone hurts us in the church. Someone sins against us. And rather than having the courage to confront this issue, to process forgiveness in a healthy way, we often run and go to another church. And it's a wrong, wrong, wrong way to deal with that issue. And we say it's just too painful to relive. And so I'm going to just let time heal this wound, which is an incredible myth, which is a lie from the pit. Time never heals anything when it comes to forgiveness. 
And the temptation is getting used, is, is I'm going to just get used to living in a state of unforgiveness, which is, in course, incredibly destructive. As it festers inside us and then begins to manifest itself in our life in all kinds of unhealthy ways. Because we have lived with this illusion, this lie, that somehow undealt with stuff over time will just sort itself out. Never happens. So let's be very clear about what Jesus says. He says, God forgive our debts, which we love. This idea that that he'll forgive us. And there's this incredible, like we talked about, this reckless love that he extends to us, this overwhelming love. But then the passage says, as we forgive our debtors. Charles Williams wrote, no word in English carries a greater possibility of terror than the little word as in that clause. Because Jesus is making this correlation between the way we treat our debtors and the way God will treat us. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And he is going to elaborate in Matthew 18 this concept from verse 12 in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And he's going to expand on this idea of what this looks like. So turn to Matthew. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. You can use your your device or your Bible to do that. And again, if you're here with us on site, um, there's Bibles at the back if you don't have one that you would like to borrow. If you need a Bible, we will give you a Bible. Glad to do it. So Jesus is interacting with his leadership team. And Peter says to him in verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus is going to talk to us about forgiveness in this passage. And I'm guessing, and of course this is just literally a guess, um, because the text doesn't say this, but I'm guessing that Peter's got something churning inside him. There's some people uh, that have hurt him, and he's processing this idea of, of, being, uh, of them not dealing with this appropriately. And he wants to work through this idea of forgiveness, probably with someone in the biblical community, perhaps even someone in the leadership team of Jesus, one of the disciples. And Peter is basically saying, I'm an incredible guy because this other person has sinned against me multiple times and I'm willing to cut him some slack right up to seven times. Let's get a hard number on this, Jesus. Let's get a line in the sand kind of idea. And obviously, isn't it, you know, if I am so good to them and will forgive them seven times, can I just kick them to the side of the road if it happens an eighth time? And in answer to this, Jesus says in verse 22, well, actually, it's 70 times seven. And he uses this large number because it's not about some exact number. It's about an idea of what forgiveness looks like. And then Jesus begins to tell a story, which he quite frequently did, to illustrate a truth about what forgiveness looks like. So let's begin reading in verse 23. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. 
As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. So this is just simply a king who wants to settle accounts. This guy owes him an astronomical amount of money. And, and I've read different people on this, and there's different opinions of what kind of money this would be. And if you look at inflation, but what would it be in today's dollars? The big idea is it's an utterly unpayable debt. There is no possibility that this debt could be paid back. Some people would postulate that it's anywhere from $1 to $2 billion in today's terms. Slightly more money than I make in a year. Way more than any person could ever repay. But the king wants to settle accounts. And so for whatever reason, either the servant blew all this money, or he was deeply negligent with the management of this money, or he invested the money really unwisely and lost it all, the day of reckoning has come. Because forgiveness, never forget this, forgiveness is costly. The time to settle accounts comes and the king says, sell this guy, sell his wife, sell his children, sell everything they have and throw them in prison until they pay their debt in full, which was a very common practice in that day. And they did that in order to prevent people from escaping, but also to pressure the extended family to cough up the dough so they could get their loved ones out of prison. But this is an unpayable debt. And so really what the king is basically saying is, you are sentenced to slavery generationally from one generation to the next. And there's no hope to get out of this. And to the people that are listening to this story that Jesus is telling, they're thinking to themselves, that sounds exactly right. You owe, you pay. You owe, you pay. But then a very interesting thing happens in verse 26. The servant throws up in football what is called a Hail Mary pass. You've got no chance seemingly of scoring the points that you desperately need to have because the game is about to be over. You send all your receivers long as can be and then you step back as their quarterback and you throw the ball as far as you're physically able to throw it and hope that it's all going to work out in the end. A Hail Mary pass. And he gets down on his knees and he begs for mercy and he says, I'll pay, I'm going to work really hard and I will pay back, I will do all of this list of things, I will do all of these things and I will pay you back in full. And it's a totally empty promise. It would be like going over to the lake here next door, Nicholas Sharan Lake, and trying to empty that lake with a teaspoon or with a straw. It's the desperate promise of a desperate man. And in verse 27, it says this. Better get to the right page here. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. The king does a couple of things. He's moved by compassion. He releases the man and he forgives the debt. Forgiveness is costly. He didn't act like there was no debt because debts need to be paid for. The debt doesn't disappear. 
but the king instead offers to pay for it himself in full. And so the king has this character of, I'll use the word reckless generosity, staggering generosity. And he changes the words from you owe, you pay to you owe, I pay. You owe, I pay. Because forgiveness absolutely needs to be paid for. This is the language, this is the economy of grace. And the man goes to his wife and to his kids and he says, we're free and it's all grace. And I want us to pause for a moment as we're examining this first part of verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6. God forgive our debts. Because this, if you know Jesus, if you know God, and have a personal relationship with him through Jesus, who is your Savior and Lord, this is your story. You can insert your name where it says servant. You have an overwhelming debt, and this was paid for by King Jesus for you. Imagine how this concept can inform your prayer life. Imagine how you can spend time in your own prayer life, appreciative of God's work for you in forgiving an unpayable debt, of not pretending like the debt wasn't there, of just casting the debt aside, but instead at an incalculable price, paying that debt for you. Imagine as well praying for that kind of thing to take place in the lives of the people that you know in the lives of the people that you love. To pray for them by name. Lord, I've experienced this incredible release from you, released from prison, released from what would be hell. And I'm completely forgiven. And I long for this to be the case in this person's life or this person's life or this person's life. These things can inform our prayer life. And so the king is God, and you and I have accumulated this mountain range of unpayable debt to which we are adding all the time. Anytime we are less than honest, anytime we are unloving to that person that's powerless to respond, every time we make a cutting remark, every time God gives us a gift and we don't say thank you, every time we gossip, every selfish act, every racist joke, every sexually impure thought, every judgmental attitude. And the reason I can roll out a list like that so readily is because that list is me at one time in my life or another. And I deserve, just like this guy, prison in hell for eternity. But when I was almost 11 years old, King Jesus said to me, Hey, Scott, I love you. And even though you don't deserve this, even though you haven't earned it and never could, Scott, you owe, I'll pay. You owe, I'll pay. Do you remember when that day was for you, when King Jesus did that for you? When he let you out of prison, when he paid your debt, and he did this by sending and going to the cross for you.
And, and really, it's appropriate to stop and say, have you received that economy of grace? Because if not, just like this guy that owes one, two billion, whatever amount of dollars, you will go to hell if you don't. So it informs our prayer life. We're grateful for what Jesus has done in our life. And we pray for that for others. And that's sort of the first half of verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6. But then he continues to flesh this out in the rest of the story. In verse 28 in Matthew chapter 18, it says this, But when the servant went out, so he gets released from prison. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me what you owe me, he demanded. And so the guy goes out and he finds someone who owes him money and he responds and says, I want my money back. Now, the listeners to the story at this point are assuming, they're going, well, you know, after the way the king treated him and forgiving this unpayable debt, and this guy owes him a pittance by comparison, surely this guy is going to pay it forward and do for this guy that owes him a little bit of money what the king did for him. And the debt in this second case, is quite payable. And again, there's a bunch of debate about how much money this really is. The big idea is it's a payable debt. There isn't a person listening to me that could not pay this debt. It's anywhere from what would amount to lunch money to two to three months of your wages. Now, if it was two or three months of your wages, that's a fairly big debt. But if you made good choices, you could pay that off. Anyone listening to me would be able to do this. And the listeners are thinking, surely this guy will show grace because his life was touched by grace in some way. And it would be some small way of saying thank you and a nod to the king. It would be an honor to forgive this debt. But this guy shows no mercy whatsoever. And he has the guy thrown into jail and he's going to be in jail until he pays his debt. And I would argue what I would suggest that the individual in this first part of Matthew chapter 18 doesn't have the first level of understanding and certainly the first level of appreciation or sincere acceptance of the grace that he was offered. Notice in the story, when he throws up the Hail Mary pass in verse 26, he was asking for the works plan. He was saying, I will... You know, King, I will do this, 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 and this, and I won't do that, 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 and that, and somehow I'll pay your debt back to you. And the king says, this isn't going to happen. It's not even theoretically possible. It's impossible. I will pay for everything, and I will take care of this debt myself. And when he did that for this guy, there was no thanks from this guy that was recorded in the passage. There was no response when it was offered. No brokenness by this guy. And so I would suggest this guy was offered this grace, but he never really embraced, never really got it. He just wanted to be off the hook. And there's a very big difference between wanting to be forgiven and just wanting to get off the hook. Wanting to be forgiven means you want to rebuild a relationship. That's the first thing God does with us. 
is he reaches out the hand to us and he wants to restore the relationship. Wanting to be forgiven means I'm wrecked in a sense by what I've done. I don't gloss over it. I don't minimize it. I don't act like it's any big, no big deal. I'm, I might even get very emotional over the things that I've done to alienate and hurt a loving God or however I've hurt that other person. It means I make the choice to humble myself and to repent and to say, I've got no excuse, I did this. It wasn't somebody else's fault, it was my fault. It was my choice, and I did it. And so God, I can't deal with this on my own. Would you forgive me, and would you help me turn and go the other way? This is what repentance really means. It means you have this inside you, this desire to set things right. And so there are times when for each of us, like this guy, we are this person in this story. So it says in verse 31, if you keep reading the story, that when the other servants saw what happened to the second guy, they go to the king and they say, you won't believe, king, what servant number one did now to servant number two. And see, when someone claims to be part of the kingdom of God, changed by grace, and they then in turn withhold forgiveness to others, it says that all the other servants are deeply distressed by this, and we ought to be distressed when we see someone that claims to be a follower of Christ not willing, as hard as it is, as costly as it is, and yet at the same time, as wonderful as it is when someone is withholding forgiveness. So the final act is the first servant the one that owed a couple billion dollars or whatever it was, is returned to the king in verse 32. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, notice that, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. King says to this guy, you didn't get it at all. You thought grace meant I was incompetent. You thought it would allow you to just get by with anything in life, that you could do anything you wanted, that you can abuse whoever you choose, however you want. You thought you could be unchanged by what I've done for you. You thought you could be the old person, the hurtful person, the self-centered person, the unforgiving person that you were before. You were shown forgiveness. You were shown you were offered grace, and it should have changed your life. You were offered the economy of grace and you decided you were going to operate in the economy of vengeance. Take them away, throw them in prison, and leave them there. And then comes one of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture. Verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. 
Can I be honest with you? I've been doing this a long time. I don't totally understand this verse. I also do not trust anybody that pretends like they've got it all figured out. The only one that I think really has it all figured out is God himself. But I just know it's a serious warning. I know enough about it to know it's a serious warning. We all have debtors. We love what God's done for us. We all have debtors. Will we choose to extend forgiving grace to them? And it's interesting, one of the songs we were singing earlier, can't quote all the lyrics, but one of the songs earlier said, forgiveness is like sweet honey on my lips. It really is. When you forgive someone in a biblical way, which we're going to talk a little bit more about right now, it is incredibly sweet. It is so peace-filled. Unlike the lie that time will deal with this, what a horrific lie from the pit. Real biblical forgiveness is like sweet honey on the lips. So let me say a few things about what forgiveness is not. And we see this illustrated in the passage. Forgiveness, when you forgive someone, that doesn't mean you excuse or tolerate wrong behavior. Forgiveness is not cheap. It's incredibly costly. The perpetrator can never pay you back in full. Never, never, never. And yet forgiveness has to be paid in full. And so it's only the one doing the forgiving that can do it. Forgiveness does not mean that if they're trying to pressure you to do the wrong thing, you're not asked to do that thing they're asking you to do. Forgiveness does not mean putting up with that which does, should, that should not be put up with. And I understand that there are people in here that have experienced some incredibly deep wounds. Forgiveness does not mean allowing that behavior to willingly go on or to have it unconfronted. As you've often heard me say, there isn't a place in this book where God says, no problem, go ahead and sin. He never, never does that. It's confronted and when it's not dealt with appropriately, like in the text, he is an angry God because he hates sin. He hates the violence that's associated with sin. He hates the peop how people get creamed by sin. It's a horrible thing. Now, having said all that, in the process of forgiveness... You may not be able to be reconciled with that person. You may try like God tries with us. He makes the first gesture. But we may not accept what God offers to us. Same thing when you're seeking to forgive someone that sinned against you. They may not respond appropriately. There's nothing you can do about that. So there's a difference between forgiving someone and reconciling with someone. Hopefully they go hand in hand but it may not be the case. If someone sins against you and refuses to acknowledge the truth, refuses to repent, you may not be able to 
reconcile like you would hope that you could. Really difficult to have a relationship with someone unless there's a mutual understanding of truth and repentance. They have to, it also, forgiveness does not mean you trust them. Because trust is earned. And the only way trust is earned is when someone not only articulates the truth, but they live out the truth in an accountable way over a long period of time. So it's truth plus time equals trust. The only way. So by forgiving someone, that doesn't mean you're giving carte blanche that you trust them again. It's earned. Forgiving means I am willing to give up the right to hurt them back. And I actually wish them well before God. In fact, it says in Matthew chapter 5, pray for those and bless those that hate you. Friends, this kind of forgiveness is like sweet honey on your lips. And I could tell you many stories in my life where this has been the case. And so when we come to this place, when we're willing to forgive, it becomes a point and a process. And that is, and only then is when time comes in. When it's been dealt with appropriately and the process goes on, then over time, healing comes, but not until. Healing happens. But this willingness to confront it, this willingness with God's grace to say, by an act of my will, I will forgive. And he will help us along the way. I've said this to you often before, but I'm going to say it again because this is so important. Forgiveness is something good that God does for himself. And in the exact same way, forgiveness is something good we do for ourselves. It says in Isaiah chapter 43, God is speaking and he says this, I, even I, am he who blots out. In other words, he pays for it in full. Again, forgiveness is deeply costly. He knows we can't pay for it. He pays for it in full. The perpetrator can never fully pay us back, ever. I, even I, am he who blots out your sin for my own sake. Because forgiveness is something good that God does for himself. It's exactly the same for us. I, even I, am he who blots out your sin for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. It's not that God cannot remember. He just never brings it up again. God is not capable of forgetting anything. He's all-knowing. But once a sin has been dealt with, he never brings it up again. He never thinks about it again. And in the exact same way, when God helps us process forgiveness with someone and that memory comes up, we have a decision to make. Am I going to run through it all in my mind again and say, they were a horrible person to me and they did this and they did this and they did this? Or I'm going to say, God, with your help, I have forgiven this person and I'm going to choose not to think about it again. And can I be honest with you? I had this talk already, finished it Friday. Yesterday, I got an email 
that the temptation was there for it to all come back up again. And I had to get down on my knees and say, God, no, no, I've dealt with this. You helped me process this, and I'm not going to let this come back again. And even when I was sitting down here in front when we were singing, I remembered that email again, and I had to pray again. And you know what? It's a wonderful thing when you can live in the forgiveness that's only available through the power of the living Christ. It's like sweet honey on your lips. Like sweet honey on your lips. I can't imagine how many marriages and friendships and relationships would be on the way to healing if when the Lord's Prayer was being prayed, we just stopped at that point and let the Holy Spirit work in our life. And let this concept, let this component from the Lord's Prayer inform our prayer life and say, yeah, I'm going to own my sin. Yes, I'm going to pray for those that, have been, that need to be in relationship with Christ, but also I'm going to let him bring to mind those that I need to yet forgive that have never been dealt with. And we're going to do that right now. We're going to take a couple of moments we're going to pray through the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to get you to, whether you're at home or you're here in the sanctuary, we're going to pray it together. And when we come to this line in the passage, we're going to stop. And I'm going to ask you to do two things just by yourself. Number one, I want you to spend some time saying, thank you, Jesus, for the literal mountain of sinful debt that I had, that I had past tense with you, that has been cleansed and forgiven, and you will never bring it up again. Thank you so much that you have forgiven my debt. Wow. Words can't express. And then if God brings someone to mind that you should pray for, that you go, I would love to see so-and-so have that kind of relationship with Jesus, you could pray for them as well. Do you see how this begins to inform your prayer life? And then secondly, to ask God, do you want to bring anyone to mind, any specific person and any specific action against you with whom you have unfinished business? I'm not talking about stuff that's been dealt with in the past. Anything that you have been avoiding. In fact, that's a very good way to look at it. If God brings to mind someone that you go out of your way to avoid, that's often an indication. Is there anybody I'm trying to avoid? Any lingering bitterness or enmity any work of forgiveness that needs to happen in my soul. I'm going to resolve. I'm going to make the choice with Jesus' help to forgive that person. So it's coming up on the screen now. Let's pray this prayer together out loud, whether you're at home, in your living room. I ask you to pray it or on the screen as well. Is it back up? On, it is on the screen there. Perfect. Um, and let's pray it together. And we're going to stop at the end of verse 12. Let's pray it. This then... Let's pray together. This then is how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's take a couple moments to pray like I talked about.
Let's finish praying this prayer together that's on the screen. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So did the Spirit of God speak to you about anyone in particular? Is there a deep hurt that's still inside you? Or maybe even, it doesn't have to be a deep hurt, just a shallow hurt. Where you're still clinging to this notion of, you owe, you pay. You owe me, you pay. But deep in your heart, you know you're the one in prison because you won't forgive. Isn't that ironic? I'm going to make them pay for what they did to me. And we are the ones that are actually in prison. You owe, you pay. And yet God says, I want you to forgive. God will help you do that. When you ask him to forgive the way that he has forgiven us. And scripture teaches us we are to forgive in the exact same way that he offers forgiveness to us. Again, a verse I've quoted to you often, Ephesians chapter 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. The exact same way God offers forgiveness to us, which is what we've been talking about, is the exact same way we offer forgiveness to others. And so today, it's likely that some of us will have a phone call to make or a letter to write and some tears that need to be shed. Maybe you ought to not leave the living room at home where you're watching right now and you need to talk to that member of the family that's hurt you or that you've hurt. Or maybe you shouldn't leave this room this morning because you look across, you always sit on the, you know, you, you avoid that person in church because they've hurt you. Maybe you need to so, go and forgive them and get right with your brother or sister in Christ. I urge you, do not leave if God's put that in your heart to do until you've done that. Jesus said, forgive us, our debts. Thanks so much for doing that, Jesus. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors.